following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Good morning. I heard one out there. Somebody's awake. Uh, We're not all awake just yet, but glad that you're here this morning. I extend the invitation to you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, please, and chapter 8. Ezekiel and chapter 8, if you would follow along. Chapter 8 of Ezekiel's prophecy, and it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward fire and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair and the spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So there it is. He's having a vision, a divinely revealed situation or truth to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. So he's being shown what it's like presently, although he's far away, hundreds of miles away, shown what it's like in Jerusalem in the temple. And behold, verse 4, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. That's from chapters 1 and 2 there, remember. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy at the entrance. Now, we need to further study that, but that speaks of idolatry. It's happening inside the temple. Verse 6, Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again. You will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abomin- abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So here they are before all of these idols, worshiping, using incense, the forms that God had assigned for them to use for his worship, they were using for the worship of idols in the temple in Jerusalem. Then he said to me, verse 12, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, another idol. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. 
and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. You see, the Lord had told them, I'm going to bring you into this land, and you are not to adopt the practices of those people in the land. So what did they go about doing? After some time passed, they did exactly what they were told not to. Verse 17, And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Wow. That's for sure. Titus chapter 3, please. Titus and the third chapter, starting in verse number 8. I've spent a bit of time in this text, uh, but the fact that I've spent more time here should not uh, discourage you from learning almost just as much as I have. Maybe not quite, but still a lot. Hopefully we learn today together in these verses, starting in verse number 8. Coming to the end of Paul's letter to Titus, the minister's instruction book here closes with some key admonitions to him, Titus, and to the church about doing good and avoiding evil works and people. Let me read the text, and I think I'm going to treat it a little bit out of order because I'd like to deal with the... uh, things to avoid first, and then come to the things that are encouraged and exhorted for us. Starting in verse number 8, our reading in Titus 3 says, This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now we're going to see something not so profitable. Verse 9 But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless or empty, vain. Verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That's a very interesting portion of the word of the Lord. Now, what I'm going to do is start with verse 9, please, and go down through 11. Then we'll come back to verse 8 to conclude our time together to end on a little bit of a higher note, perhaps I could say. Um, He starts out in verse number 9 with some things to avoid, things to avoid. Let's trust the Lord to help us to understand this and not get too bogged down in in the words, uh, the particular particularities, if you will, but to get the big picture of it. The word that starts the verse in verse number 9 is, but avoid, avoid uh, foolish things and so on. It actually doesn't come at the beginning of the Greek text. It comes at the end of it. And you say, well, why did they move it to the beginning? Well, because in English it makes a little more sense. You could understand it both ways, but often that's the case. Uh, In Greek, the emphasis... Uh, sometimes falls on a word either at the beginning or at the end of a sentence. You've heard me say that many times, and this is one of those things where if you read it that way, it almost kind of does highlight it. Foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, like dash, 
avoid them. Be, be clear about that. Now, this word avoid kind of means to go around, like to almost to circumvent those things, to and really to shun them, to avoid them. Now, although the word is not used in this context, you could think of an illustration like this. A Jewish person in the time of Christ, I'm thinking of John chapter 4, would avoid a certain place on the map. Jesus went directly to that place because he had somebody to speak to and a bunch of people to minister to. But if you were a Jewish person at the time of Christ, you would avoid Samaria. And how would you do that? You'd go the long way around. So if there is a situation where there are one of these four items that are mentioned, foolish disputes and strivings, you are going to look for ways to go around them, to to go the other direction, to avoid them, to shun them. We're not to get involved in those things. Uh, If you have found yourself in a conversation that has this kind of going on, you have to find, you feel like you have to find a gracious way to exit that conversation. But, you know, maybe you don't have to worry about it being perfectly gracious. You know what I mean? Like, maybe instead of you worrying about your saving your face, you worry about getting out of that conversation, and maybe the other folks in the conversation, especially if they are professed Christ, would be encouraged uh, to get on to the right path. So you would avoid that kind of thing. Second Timothy 2.16 says this. It says, But shun, there's the idea, profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. You know, stop. Stop digging the hole if you don't want to get more deeper into the ungodly category or stop planting ungodly seeds and you'll stop harvesting ungodly fruit. So shun those things. We're to avoid worldly and empty chatter. I think on that count, many of us would say, yeah, I've probably failed a few times in that department and I need to be more aware of that instead of just getting kind of sucked into the peer group and the peer pressure, so to speak, back away and say, no thanks, I'm not going to be involved in that kind of thing. Now, there are four items that are listed here to be avoided like the plague, as I call it in my notes. Number one is foolish disputes. You see that at the beginning of verse number nine, foolish disputes. And obviously, you have to make a judgment call as to when something is a dispute that is necessary versus not necessary. And also a judgment call as to about when it's foolish or not. Some disputes are necessary, at least initially. So uh, an example in the Bible is Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have gone to a church and are ministering there in, in Antioch. And it comes up that some teachers come in and say, look, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. And after there was no small contention among Paul and Barnabas on one side and these other teachers on the other side, they decided we're going up to Jerusalem and we're going to marshal some more assistance here from the other apostles, Peter and the leader of the church there, Pastor James, and we are going to get this thing straightened out. So that's in Acts chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, but if you want, you can. I'm going to read a couple of verses from that portion. Uh, It says... 
In verse 1, they came down from Judea and taught the brothers, saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And then drop down to verse 7, Acts 15, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then he says, look, the Spirit of God was given to them just as he was to us. God made no distinction between them and us. And he reasons through the situation and says, look, we can't be making Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. There's not a halfway point between unsaved and Christian where you have to stop to get Jewish first. That's just not how it works. And then the Apostle James We call him Apostle James. Pastor James there of the church stands up, and he made a speech and summarized as well what was happening there, and they decided what to do about this question. Well, they had a necessary dispute at first, and somebody is is, is really could say, well, look, I just don't like disputes and conflict. We're just going to whitewash the whole thing and forget about it. We're not going to deal with it. We'll allow that doctrine in our church, and we'll be happy with it because we don't want the fight. That's not correct, okay? If you have a gospel issue, if you have a central core important issue, again, a judgment call, you have to deal with it. But once the issue has been dealt with, it then can fall into the category of foolish disputes to go back to it. Ever after Acts chapter 15, until 2021, September, what is it, 5th today, Going back to this dispute is foolishness. This has been settled. It's finished. There's no reason to go back to it. Okay, But people do want to go back to it. We take the Spirit-directed answer in Acts 15, and we leave it at that because we believe the Bible. Okay, I'll mention later an incident or several incidents that occurred relative to that kind of thing in my own ministry recently. There are some people, however, who delight in quarreling. They delight in quarreling. They have to be right. They have to always come back with their point. They have to uh, give the, the, the final answer. They have to have the final word. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, and, and we've got to watch this, friends, in our relationships, in our church, that we aren't the, uh, the know-it-alls or the people that always have to be quarreling. It says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such. Paul tells Timothy, his other understudy, highlighted in Scripture, to withdraw yourself, just back away from them. Same kind of idea here. So we're to avoid foolish disputes, judgment call. Ask yourself, is this dispute really worth it, or do I need to just back away and get out of the situation? Secondly, we're to avoid genealogies. Uh, This is mentioned in 1 Timothy 1. Again, I'll let you look at that as homework. Nothing's wrong, of course, with knowing your family history. It's kind of fascinating to dig back a little bit and see 
uh, your family heritage, and so on. But being obsessed with it is not permissible to the Christian, being obsessed with it. Your genealogical record does nothing for you spiritually. Do you know that? You got a fresh start when you were conceived. <laughs> You're a new person, okay? Um, your record of genealogy does not get you into heaven, nor can it keep you out. It does not bring you into favor with God, nor does it keep you out of favor with God. It has no bearing on that. You are your own person. You've been brought into the world in the circumstances you have, certainly, but to say, well, you know, my family has been cursed because, you know, this or that problem that we've had and, and so on. Nope, drop it, forget it. Uh, your genealogy does not change that stuff. Now, you see this in the Old Testament. Very important, the genealogical information. If you couldn't prove, for example, that you were a Levite, uh, ooh, wow, that hurts because, you know, you like in Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, certain people couldn't prove that they were priests, and so they had to be withheld from sharing in the holy things that were dedicated to God until they were discovered as to whether they really were priests uh, or not. Today, of course, every believer is a priest to God. That is, we can directly approach God, no intermediary necessary other than Jesus Christ, of course, but no person, no human being on this earth. Uh, everyone is a small p priest who is a Christian and in Christ. And so we can pray and enjoy unfettered access to God any day of the year, not just the Day of Atonement like we talked about this morning. Uh, it was thought, too, that being knowledgeable about your tribal connection was very important. But this is not so in Christ, because in Him there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, male or female. We could add other categories, rich or poor, or any number of other things. That's not how it works. Those characteristics may be real and may be consequential, but they're not in terms of being right with God. So don't be dis, you know, into all this genealogical information. I suppose, too, we could probably trace back some, uh, to some pagan and idolatrous connections. You know, if you know, you're part of the family of a long line of priests of whatever, or you know, you're connected to the oracles of Delphi, or, or you know, and you're just like, you've got this special connection and a special you know, biological enlightenment because you're the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so. Just forget it. It's all useless. And that's what Paul is saying. Avoid genealogies like that. Avoid, thirdly, contentions, strife, discord, rivalries. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 says, you folks that have this in the Corinthian church, full of contention, that is a mark of the flesh. That is carnality, not of the Spirit. And then fourthly, he says, avoid strivings about the law. This, I think, is more one subcategory of the foolish disputes. So foolish disputes can be a whole bunch of stuff. One of those kinds of things, strivings about the law. We saw that from Acts chapter 15. The days, the months, the years, the circumcision, the sacrifices, the festivals, all of that is out. No Christian is obligated to keep them. You may if you want. That's fine. The contention that I had to be clear for my friends who were opposed to this, not in this church, there are people online that were making all kinds of comments, to be clear now, listen, the difference is this, 
we're not requiring upon you to worship on Sunday, but we're saying you are not allowed to require upon us to worship on Saturday or to have circumcision or to keep the law or to keep the kosher diet or all of that stuff. That's the issue. That is, if you want to do that stuff, have at it. But Gentiles are not required to do those things to be right with the Lord. When Paul wrote, the altar was probably still functioning in Jerusalem. And in fact, Paul took vows, remember? He went into the temple in Acts 21 or 2, and of course that's where he was found and dragged out of there, and that launched him onto the whole journey to Rome. But he, was, he did some things you know, re- relative to the Jewish faith still in order to show them that he was not opposed to them, but that is not required or laid upon uh, the people of God today. Now look at the end of verse number 9. You are to avoid one, two, three, four things, for they are unprofitable and useless. There's no advantage, there's no benefit, there's no fruit, there's no power, there's no help in the, in the aforementioned items that we've talked about. They're devoid of value. My friends, you might not feel like it right now, but you have a limited time left on this earth. Every time I go to a funeral, it's a hard reminder. You're not, you can't just kind of ease through that into something. I mean, it's, you're gone. You're done. Okay? And... You have limited time. You know, we, we often deal with the question, okay, where are you going to go and, and, and all of that. We understand that. It's either heaven or Hades, one or the other. There's not three or four or ten different places, okay? But here's the thing that I'm talking about. These are unprofitable and useless, and you have a slice of world history in which to live, and don't spend it on unprofitable and useless things. Spend it on profitable and useful things. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. Avoid this stuff, but fill your life with good works, verse number 8, which we'll come to in just a moment. One of the other things, and so you want to you fill your life with serving God reverently and with fear before Him, not with useless stuff. Man, it's so easy to get wrapped up in useless stuff. We don't recognize what useless stuff is unprofitable things. These are some of them. There are others as well. Uh, In verses 10 to 11, Paul tells us to reject a divisive person, a person who tries to start and sustain a faction, uh, maybe has some heretical doctrine or practice and wants to spread it among the people, gain a following, campaign for it, criticize others for not believing it, look down on those who don't believe like you do because you know, they're just poor people. They just don't get it. You know, they don't have the, the super insight that I have into some area perhaps of doctrine or something. The Corinthian church had this doctrine uh, or divisions rather that divided them throughout the church, throughout the letter that comes up. Proverbs 6 talks about a troublemaker who sows discord. Proverbs 6.19 says God hates those who sow discord among brethren. That is a serious statement. So is discord among brethren. That means any group that you could consider, this is a general proverb, okay? So any group you could consider as brethren, where there is a seed sower of division, this is a serious problem. God hates it. So you have a family. They're 
brothers. Somebody comes in and divides the family, intrudes on the marriage, does something to break up the home. That is a division that is displeasing, highly displeasing to God. Church, spiritual brothers. Somebody comes in to cause trouble, displeasing to God. How about a nation? The brotherhood of people who live in a state or in a nation like the United States and people come in from the outside or rise up from within to sow discord in the church, to promote hatred, divisions, and divide it up and slice it all up into different categories and balkanize the culture. God hates that. You understand? God hates that. That is serious. Nothing good comes from such divisions, and God is highly displeased with them. Now, of course, some divisions are useful because there are people who hold to the truth, and if they hold to the truth, then the dividing line between them and everybody else, that's a good thing. Paul says sometimes those factions are necessary so that it will become evident who is approved by God and who is not approved by God. So he's saying reject divisive people. Now, there's a precondition to the rejection. You don't just say, forget you. You give them two warnings. Okay, so now we're going to focus on a church context here. Give them two warnings. Adequate admonition before moving away from the factious person. But two warnings is all that are needed. The main people involved in this faction must be told to knock it off or go elsewhere. Give them a little space and see if they'll do so. And if they don't, then give them another admonition. But after that, it's time to act. Now, somebody has to do this. Unfortunately for me, <laughs> that often falls to me in the role of a pastor. Um, but, you know, if, you're, if you have an extended family situation, and you've got somebody who's sowing discord, a divisive person in your family, it's not my job to handle it. You know, head of the house, that's your job to handle it. And you have a tough, uh, tough road to hoe there, but you've got to do it. Uh, the shepherds in the church are, are responsible for carrying out this kind of ministry in the church with the help, however, of the whole body. When the whole body gets together, they lighten the load on the pastor's shoulders. They make for an encouraged pastor and strengthens the church against that division, whatever it is. So... We are talking here about what we've said before and is called church discipline. That is, and I know people don't, some don't like that term because discipline, we don't like discipline, but that's the heading that it's fallen under. What it is is the church's ministry to unrepentant people. If somebody's persisting in being quarrelsome, persisting in, in causing division in the church then, and won't repent of that, then our role is to help them repent. To call them to repentance. It's not just for us. I mean, it does protect the church if somebody has to be removed for false doctrine. But it helps that person. That's what we're hoping for, that they will turn away from their divisive practice. And so two admonitions. Kind of sounds like Matthew 18, doesn't it? It does because it's connected to that. Why do we do this? Verse number 11 says, we reject after the first and second admonition because we know, that's what it means, that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned. Now, that seems very harsh to the modern sensibilities, doesn't it? That person is warped. They are 
perverted. They're sinning. They're self-condemned. Ouch, that, that hurts. But that's the truth. The division over petty or unimportant matters or because of false teaching is damaging to the church regardless of who it is that causes the division. And uh, we have to keep in mind, too, that you know, division and unity are important doctrines. Are you with me? So they have to be weighed against the matter at hand. Okay, so suppose you have a matter like a, a matter of the gospel. Uh, say, how somebody's saved, or this issue in Acts 15 about needing to keep the law. Orthodoxy must prevail, and those who are stirring up trouble must be removed. Okay? But if the division is over some minor point of church operations, you know, people often say the color of the carpet became an issue. That's not an issue. Okay, the doctrine of the unity of the church has to rule over that, even if you don't get your own way in whatever it was that you were hoping to achieve, some detailed point of eschatology you know you don't agree on. The doctrine of the unity of the church must prevail. Okay, so the apostle gives further explanation, however. He says, uh, we can take this rejecting action because the person themselves is warped and living in sin. Now, somebody who's in this boat, who's doing this, would say, well, you can't judge me. I'm not judging you. Look at what the text says. The Scripture says they are judging themselves. This actually is a very interesting word. It's a combination of two words in Greek, which basically is auto-judged. They are self auto-judged. I don't have to judge them. They've judged themselves. You see? Don't let them cow you into submission by saying, you can't judge me. No, you just judge yourself. By your activity in the church, you are showing yourself to be warped and sinning. Okay? Unrepentant persistence in such a state indicates that they're not truly following Christ and need to be addressed with great seriousness before they do even more damage to their church, their family, their society, uh, or whatever group it is that they're in. Now, the action is to reject. This is, again, a last word in the phrase. It means to turn away from them. We see parallels in First and Second Timothy and Titus. God's very serious about this. If there are people who are like this, you've got to get away from them. Refuse, uh, shun, decline, don't accept, spurn, those kinds of things. When the preconditions are met, set them out. You can be certain you're not losing anything by, by that. This is a, there's, a, there's a lot of temptation that's involved in here. You know, like, um, one is you, know, you begin to feel like almost guilty. Like if you're on the right side of the equation, like, should I be doing this? Is it right? Look, it's not you if you're... Standing with the church, you're standing with the Lord, you're standing on the word. It's not you who are, is the problem. The person sowing the division is the one causing the problem. You don't have to be guilty about that. The other thing is, you say, well, if, if that person leaves the church, then, you know, uh, their offerings are going to go away and their, their support. No, forget it. Forget the money. The truth counts. That's right, exactly. Keep your money. Like Peter told that guy in Acts 8, remember him? 
Yeah, may it perish with you. You're bound in iniquity. We don't have anything to do with people like that. They must be put out of the church. Church history and tradition tells us that particular fellow was a thorn in the side of the church forever after that. Apparently didn't repent. At least that's what the story, how the story is told. The thing is, if you don't reject the person, you're going to be distracted and upset and end up wasting time and, and all of that. You don't need to be in that kind of state. So we uh, avoid certain things. We reject certain people and for the protection of the church. I mean, you've made decisions like this, and sometimes, you know, like you have to make that decision with regard to school for your kids. I'm going to hold my kids out of that public school because you know what? They're getting there, right? And they're not going to change. I mean, you're not going to walk into their classroom and suddenly talk to them, and they're going to be, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. CRT is wrong. I shouldn't be teaching that. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that, but they're causing great division in the society. So we have to do those things sometimes, as difficult and unpleasant as they are. But here's what the Apostle Paul wants us to do, to focus on, and that is to maintain good works. Verse number 8, as we close with this, he says, This is a faithful saying. Now that occurs several times, that phrase in the Bible, and it refers to a, a, a statement that's like a, a well-known, uh, almost proverbial, perhaps it was pre-written or it had kind of came into uh, Christian culture and Paul puts his imprimatur on that by the inspiration of the Spirit of God and says this is a certainty and accurate to the truth of God, a statement that is faithful. Now, sometimes you have a question about, well, where is the faithful saying? Is it what came before, or is it what's just about to come? And it can do either, either one. I think in this case, you can make a good case that the faithful saying is what came before. What was that? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a faithful saying. That is a faithful saying. Of course, we could say in a way, everything the Bible says is a faithful saying. But here Paul is calling this out and saying, you know, he's kind of saying amen to that. You know, that's true. Faithful saying, absolutely. Verse 8, and these things I want you to affirm. What things? Well, the things that he's been saying and the things that he's about to say, I think it applies to all of this. These things I want you to affirm constantly. Affirm the gospel constantly. Affirm that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. Affirm that we have an inheritance in Christ, the hope, the expectation of eternal life, and what the grace of God teaches. Remember the grace of God that, appeared, that brings salvation has appeared to all men? teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We've got to do this and this and this all the way through here. The Apostle Paul is teaching Titus these things, and he says, I want you to affirm them constantly, to affirm constantly. I want you to lay stress on these truths, he says. I want you to repeat them. I want you not to get tired of teaching them. I want you to go over them again and again and review them. What's the best way to learn something? That's it. 
It's repetition. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of you kind of learn something and then you say, you know what, I'm so interested in that. I'm going to read that book again. And you go over that again, not just in Bible study, but any kind of study. God's wired us this way. I had that experience when I taught at the seminary level uh, the first-year Hebrew class. Now, I learned the Hebrew, first-year Hebrew class, uh, probably 2000, I don't know, three or two or four, I don't remember now, but whenever it was. And then in 2007, I was called upon to teach a class for a professor who was on sabbatical. And they uh, gave me credit for that class as in the Master of Theology program. In other words, they gave me credit for teaching. The guys who were getting credit for the Master of Divinity, I got credit for the next level up degree. And that was a blessing. But I did fine in the class when I took it. But you don't learn it quite the same way as when you have to teach it. And you have to go and read that book again. And the, the number of highlights in that book greatly exponentially increased by the time I had to go through and teach that class. And I had to really think about this and figure out, well, how am I going to explain this? And I didn't really grasp that so well when I was in the, in the class, but maybe I can explain that better this time or something differently. And so by repetition, by going over and over again, and we just tend to be forgetful people, don't we? You know, you, I have a hobby that I've been working on, and the same thing. You go over it and over it and over it and over it, and you learn it. And before you know it, you, you look back and you say, man, a year ago I was pretty dumb about that. Now I know a lot better about that area that I'm interested in. So uh, not that I've arrived at anything, but, you know, life is learning, isn't it? Life is all about learning. We have trouble remembering what we learned sometimes last week. Uh, what did what did you learn in Sunday school today, son? Uh, <laughs> you never do that, do you? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, sometimes we have that. We kind of you know our, our mental effort kind of reduces and we check out a little bit and we don't quite pay attention. But we have to remember. Uh, much, you know, we forget what we learned last week or yesterday, much less what we've learned in our whole lives spiritually. Uh, we need to review those things. The intention of Titus's teaching is that these faithful truths are repeated to the believers. <clears throat> and that the main idea is that you have to affirm constantly with this end in mind that those who believe in God, that's Christians, should be careful to maintain good works. To be careful means to give serious mental attention to these works on this matter. How can I help others? How can I do good in my life situation? How can I be a blessing? Because, he says, these things are good and profitable. You want to spend that little segment of world history that has your name on it on the timeline wisely, not wasting it, not using it for unprofitable things, then you do this because these are good and profitable to men. That's the kind of quality of life that we have as we live and serve God here. We help others. 
Uh, we contrast that, of course, with verses 9, 10, and 11, those things that we're supposed to expunge from our lives, clean out, because they are useless and unprofitable. At this point, I want to just ask you this question. The outline of the passage is pretty clear. Do good works, avoid foolish things, avoid people who are troublemakers, basically. But I want you to do this as an application of our message today. Today, and even right now, think. Be careful. Think about what am I going to do this week? September 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, until next Sunday. What am I going to do this week that is a good work? What benevolent thing am I going to do? How am I going to help somebody? How am I going to provide some need? How am I going to minister in the church? Am I going to call up somebody and be an encouragement to them? Am I going to go visit a shut-in? Am I going to, am I going to buy somebody's gas for them? Am I going to uh, invite somebody for a meal? Am I going to whatever? You think. When you say, you see a need, think about how that need could be filled. How you can fill that need. Not, oh, I've got a good idea. pastor could help somebody. I might could do that, if I can say it that ungrammatically correct way. I might could. But you could too. You could too. There you go, brother. You could too. Fulfill that need. Plan, think. How am I going to look for opportunities that you have? Somebody's broken down on the side of the road and you're a brother that's got the capacity to help change that tire or pick them up and give them a ride to the next exit on the highway or whatever. Do it. Do something. You're meant for good works. You never know. I think there was a story out of Hiawatha Bible Church. They brought uh, Thanksgiving dinner or something to some family. Christy can correct me on this. But they made a new contact and the people ended up getting saved and coming to the church. Woo, maybe it was Christmas, whatever it was. But you never know the kind of people. I, I was uh, giving away something from the church. We had some extra pipe, and I uh, haven't got rid of it all yet, brother, sorry. But there's some 19-foot links out there. People's cars just don't fit that stuff. So I've had to suggest, you know, hey, hacksaw it in half if you want shorter pieces. But I gave some of that away, and Jansen and I were here, and the uh, lady came, and she said what she was going to use it for, and it was just you know a nice conversation. And she said, I've never been to a church. And I said, well, actually, you have now. <laughs> and we're, I was able to share the gospel with her just briefly. Right out here, she was loading the car with her things. Totally random. I had no idea who was coming to pick up this stuff that we put on free cycle. Um, but God sent that person. We met a need for that person, a physical need, but we actually began to make you know, inch forward on making a, meeting a spiritual need as well. And so I obviously invited her to come to church and say, hey, come again, you know, we'd like to have you. And she was very positive toward Christian people, but not one herself. And she's had good experiences with Christians, maybe who have helped her in the past or whatever. And so now she has one more good experience, and hopefully she'll come along to the church. But you, have, you never know when those opportunities come up. Look for them. Because there are a million people out there, at least 150,000 in the Ann Arbor area, that need your attention, that need our help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have told us to be careful to maintain good works. 
to avoid certain things in our lives and to not be involved in unprofitable and useless things. And I pray that you'd simply help us this week. Help us to put uh, wheels to our faith, uh, rubber on the road, uh, put our hands to the plow, the shoulders to the yoke, whatever illustration would help us to understand that we do have some things that we've been ordained to do and we can be actively involved in that ordination of those good works. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.